Hi, this is George Thorgood. Hey, this is Pat Travers. Hey, this is Steve Luke there of Toto. Hey, this is Ryan. Hey, this is Chuck. We're in Black Top Mojo. You're listening to Guitar Talk with Jimmy Warren. All right, everybody's Jimmy Warren here on Guitar Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. Okay, I'm not a guy who likes to play games, but we're going to play a game right now. All right, I'm going to play the few seconds of a song. You guess who my guest is, all right? All right, there you have it. Did you guess who it was? Come on. I know some of you out there got it. You had to have gotten it. If you're guitar players, you've had to have gotten it. If you didn't, okay, here, wait a second. One more. Oh, my God. That's such an iconic song to me as a guitar player. And you're right. It is Frank Marino. Frank Marino is my guest today on Guitar Talk with Jimmy Warren. I tell you what, he doesn't need no introduction. Here we go. Now, I remember back at that time you were working on a video. I, th- I believe it was a yeah, Christmas DVD, video. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you ever get that completed and released? Yeah, it's out. I put it out last August. It's been going very, very well, actually. Ah, cool, cool. You haven't heard about it? No, I haven't heard about it, and I haven't seen it. So, you know, you're, you're going to have to tell me where I need to go to, to get it, because I definitely want to get it. Do you have it. YouTube? Yeah, I have YouTube. That's where it's at, is on YouTube? No. But if you simply, if you go to YouTube, okay, like, not only, like, this guy put out a series of trailers, you know, like movie trailers? Right. So he put out a series of trailers for the DVD. One is a long one of three minutes, then there's one with Johnny Winter and a couple of other guys talking about it. Uh, but uh, but if you go to the, um, if you just look, if you go on YouTube and write Frank Marino um, DVD trailer, you'll see the, the trailer for it, which shows pieces of it and, you know, stuff like that. And then it also tells you where to go to see the text the text on. You can even get there by going to mahoganyraji.net slash DVD and hit the hit enter, and you'll get a page with all the info and the video and the trailer and everything. So. Oh, cool. Well, I'm going to go there, you know, tonight and you check it out. probably should check it out before we speak. I mean, just Are you in front of a computer? I am in front of a computer. Just take a look at it now. I got to go get something in the other room. Can you just look it up now? I'll, I'll come back in about thirty seconds. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, this is where Frank has kind of left the interview for a moment, and uh, you know I'm on the computer and I'm trying to look up this this video and you know so I can check it out and uh, and that before he comes back so we can have our conversation. But it's funny, you know, some of the things that pop up. Uh, that people don't typically get to hear. Now, normally I would never leave this in here. You know, it would be edited so you didn't even know what happened. But it's kind of funny, you know, that you know they ask you to stop and check it out. I mean, I've had guys, you know, put me on hold so they go feed their dog. Or, <laughs> I mean, it's, there's some crazy stuff that takes place. But it's Frank Marino, right? What do you do? It's Frank Marino. Okay, so... He went and did whatever he had to do, and I went ahead and looked up his stuff online, and we are back at it. Doing very well. I can imagine. You know, how, how does it make you feel, though, to, to know that guys, like I saw the quote from Bonamassa, 
you know, who's kind of at the top of the the heap right at the moment. I mean, it's got to make you feel good that guys like that, you know, you, you know, uh, say that, you know, you've been a, a huge inspiration and they wouldn't be what they are if it wasn't for, you know, wasn't for you. Well, the truth is that, you know, yeah, of course, it's, it's who's not going to like that, you know? <laughs> the fact is that, that um, it makes up for, you know, as I've been 50 years in the business and I never made any money at all, so that kind of makes up for it, you know? Yeah. You know, other guys that are 50 years in the business, they at least bought themselves a house. I'm still living a rental, so, you know? So when when you get guys like that who who you know I respect a lot of great players and they and they start telling you that you know you did something for their for their development uh, hey you know yeah what what's really better than that I mean if, if you get money for your career you end up spending it or leaving it to someone else <laughs> and if you get respect that sort of lasts forever yeah so yeah you know. well I, I know for myself that. Uh, you know, I can honestly say if it wasn't for you and your playing and your music, I would have never picked up the guitar either. Well, that's really amazing yeah. to hear. Yeah. I mean... And I, I got to tell you something. I get... I, I really do get more of a bang, okay, out of hearing that when it comes from people who aren't famous. Yeah. Uh, most people would think that you get a real bang out of the famous ones, yeah. but the way I look at it is, you know, those guys, you know, they got famous, they were going to be famous anyway, okay, it had nothing <laughs> to do with it, you know, I had nothing to do with it, maybe it helped development at some point, but when when somebody tells me that it made it meant a lot to them and they never did get any kind of fame from it, then that's really the kind of influence that uh, I would prefer to have because yeah. it's it's genuine. It's just genuinely, you know, it, it, the only motivation somebody could have for telling me that is that it's absolutely, completely, 100% true. Mm. <laughs> yeah. it, and Look, there, there have been a lot of guys that I've met in the industry, and not guitarists, but let's say guys in bands, singers and people in other bands that have, you know, they'll come up to you when you're doing well and, and they'll tell you, uh, oh, man, your record is great, and I heard it, and it's fantastic. But a lot of the time they're telling you that because because you're there and they're telling you that. It's not really that they were sitting around listening to your record. Yeah. And, um, and so that, you take it with a bit of a grain of salt, you know? But yeah. when a person who's a fan or regular person tells you that, then you know that that's absolutely true. This person literally sat down and listened to the records and learned shit off it and right. meant something to them. So that's why it gives me a little more bang for the buck when I hear that. Yeah. Well, I, I can honestly say from my own standpoint, your music has, uh, it's been on my playlist. It's something that I listen to regularly because I, 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 I am kind of amazed that you're playing. And I am kind of amazed at the fact that you didn't get the, you know, the the house or the fame or whatever because you play just as good, if not better, than you know ninety of ninety percent of the guys who you know have made it. If you know in that in that fashion, because I think you were doing things. I think you were innovative. You one thing that I I always dug about Frank Marino was the fact that 
Here's a guy that just closes his eyes and just lets it go. I don't know where it comes well, yeah. from. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it's probably, you know, yeah, that's, I think, but if you think about it, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, that's kind of how you're supposed to do it, you know? I mean, it's almost the same in other things, like I happened to play a little bit of hockey, you know, ice hockey, and, um, and sometimes when you go to take a shot, the one you score on is the one you didn't think about. It just finds the corner, you know, like yeah. it, it just happens. You just know that it's going there, you know? Yeah. And I think music is a lot like that. But when you consider, you know, are, are we, is this, are we doing the interview right now or yeah. are we just talking? No, no, no. Okay. I, yeah. I'm, I'm recording. Yeah. It. yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure. <laughs> yeah. um, so when you consider something about a musician, Right, like when I looked at a guy when growing up, and I'd say, "Wow, that's a really great musician." Sometimes you wouldn't say he was a great musician. Sometimes you'd say he was a great player. Right. And people could say, "Well, what's the difference?" And the way I look at it is this: is that there's there's three or four elements that go into a guy who's playing music. So let's say you walked into a room and you saw a guy playing guitar, and he was just doing some really amazing stuff. And not only was he moving amazingly, you know, like really technically well, no, no mistakes, the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. But the phrases he was doing were fantastic phrases. They weren't just linear, and they were, wow, what a line, gee, how did he do that? You know, that kind of thing that you get a feeling from. And you'd say, wow, this guy's a really great musician. Now, let's say you, you rewind, you stop the tape, you rewind, you walk back into that same room, okay? Okay. You've got the same musician, you haven't seen him yet. He's the same guy. But he decided he was going to turn his guitar around and play it left-handed. Now, all of a sudden, you see that guy and you go, oh, this guy can't play. And yet, you're talking about the very same musician. <laughs> so, so on the one hand you said what a great musician wow what a musician now you walk in and if his hand isn't working that's the one part that you need yeah all of a sudden you'd say well he's not a good musician but he's actually the same musician he just his hand's not working because he's playing the other way he still has all the knowledge all the lines all the phrases all what goes together he's got that all in his head not in his hand yeah. But you don't know that because his hand is not doing what his brain knows. So those are two independent elements. So the musician part is in the brain. The performer part, the, the uh, let's say that the abilities part is in the hand or the coordination. Yeah. But there's another part. There's what people call feel, if you want to put it this way inspiration like it's one thing to know everything about music you can take a professor of music and he's going to know you know a scale is this and you need to use a minor scale with this chord and this has a relative you know minor they'll know all that this is the musician part is the technical knowledge but the inspiration that thinks up the idea the song where does that come from yeah. that's the third part yeah. and when you get when you get two of them, 
the hand and the brain, you get a musician or you get a performer or you get both. But when you get all three of them, you get an artist. Yeah. That's a good way. So, that's, a, that's a good analogy. It's a good way to put that. Yeah, I, I'm very loath to call people artists. As we tend to use the term, I think we overuse it. Yeah. And that's not because I'm putting down the ones that aren't, quote, artists. It's because not everybody, lots of guys have two of the three, or there's four abilities, actually. There's performance, there's ability, there's thinking, and there's inspiration, or feel, what you call feel, right? Mm-hmm. I think if you, if somebody has all of that, it's just graduated to be called an art at that point. It doesn't all of a sudden do away with the other one. But we, we know that, you know, I've seen many, many cats that have, like, just insanely good ability, and they know a heck of a lot about music, but they just can't really think up a song. They're not really good at that, or if they do, it's not something that a lot of people say, wow. But on the other hand, you get the exact opposite. You get guys that write just the most amazing songs, but yet they're not very good at all on their instruments, such as the Beatles. Yeah. No great instrumentalist on the Beatles. So what we have is ad- adequate instrumentalists, but with really good in the third position, the inspirational position, and the knowledge of what to do with it. Yeah. So they still qualify as musicians without necessarily having the ability. So a person can be a musician without being really flashy on his instrument, or even being able to be flashy on his instrument. You still can be a musician, not yeah. just an instrumentalist. On the other hand, look at the kids that pick up the tablature yeah, and literally learn note for note how to move their hands as if they're learning typing. And they just do everything perfectly, but they don't know anything about the music they're doing. That does happen. Right. I've seen a lot of kids that are able to come and play, you know, the black page, <laughs> And they don't know the difference between minor, major, minor, third, a fifth, a fourth. They don't know what that is, the right. theory of it. So really, they're instrumental. Yeah. And I think we tend to confuse the issue when we lump everybody in the same you know, group. And even worse, when we make it a, a good thing or a bad thing. Because it's just a thing. Yeah. It's not good or bad. If you're just the instrumentalist, that's not bad. That's just as good as if you're not. Everybody sort of got their thing, and some guys do three of the four, some guys do four of the four, some guys do the last two and not the first two, some guys do the first two and not the last two. So I think when I look at it like that, it sort of equalizes everybody. It sort of makes everybody able to be in my... Like, anybody can join my band, because they're going to bring something that they do and consequently people say to me you know how come you've always got different drummers and you've always got different bass players and they're always guys we never heard of they're never famous people that's because i'm always willing to take anyone into the group and play with him if he's if he at least approaches it from a musician standpoint yeah and not well i'm going to be the band because we're going to be famous or we're going to be rich or going to get the girls or something you know right. that's the wrong motivation yeah. and, and at that point it doesn't matter whether the guy is fast or not fast or sure-handed or not sure-handed or you know perfect on his instrument or not perfect on his instrument. none of that matters what really matters is the whole 
feel and honesty with which you're going to deliver what you play. And if I'm going to play a, a solo, I hate even calling them solos. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the only solo I do in, in my show is at the end when nobody else is playing. That's <laughs> <laughs> a solo. <laughs> you know, I never, I, I always had a problem with the idea of calling it the solo while you're in a song. It doesn't make sense to me, and we all accept it as if it's the solo, but it's really not a solo, it's an accompaniment. It's a, it's a moment when you get to play some kind of other melody on your instrument that the singer didn't sing, hmm. or the keyboardist didn't play. Yeah. That's sort of how I look at it, but, you know, semantics, we call it a solo, a guitar solo, but it's not. Yeah. only solo I do is when the band goes off the stage, I do electric reflections of war, or I do something alone beginning of a tune that's a solo yeah and there's a tendency for us to look at our favorite guys and think that what they're doing is what the music is about Hmm. and i i think it's a bad tendency like i'll give an example my favorite guitar player of all time was always Jimi hendrix For the originality, for the uniqueness, for the tone, for the sound, for the oddness of it, the right phrases. You know what I'm saying. Jimi Hendrix is very inimitable. You can't really copy him. And the funny thing about Jimi Hendrix is that he sort of became, you know, after many years, he became the staple of the rock guitar player. You know, look, here's my Jimi Hendrix. And everyone does their, their little solo in their Jimi Hendrix fashion, right? But if you look at all those guys that do that, every time they do do that, joking or otherwise, they begin to play really, really fast. But if you look at a Jimi Hendrix catalog of records, you can't find one single song where he played fast. Yeah. And in your mind, you think there's going to be, going, oh, of course he did, of course he did. And when you actually go looking, you don't find it. The fastest thing Jimi Hendrix ever played on vinyl or on tape was four or five notes in the middle of Machine Gun and a couple in Voodoo Child, uh, long, the long Voodoo Child yeah. jam. That's it. Yeah. So where do we get this idea that when we're Jimi Hendrixing, <laughs> we got to do this like wild solo that rises up to the high notes at 16, you know, 16 to 30 second notes? It's a misconception about what Jimi Hendrix was really actually doing, and that's why he's not imitatable. Yeah. Because too many good players don't realize you've got to slow down and play quarter notes to play Jimi Hendrix. Foxy Lady, Manic Depression, you name it. So this is a misconception I think we have, particularly among guitarists. It's not as that problem is not as prevalent among, let's say, bass players or vocalists or keyboardists. But among guitarists, for some reason, there's that stereotypical idea of what a guitar solo is and what a guitar player is doing. And I think that, by and large, we, we, we do ourselves a great disservice by not sitting back for a second and saying, hey, what are we really singing here on the instrument? What are we actually doing? Hmm. On, 
And Richie Havens once told me, we were discussing Jimi Hendrix, because he knew him. And naturally, if I met Richie, it was like, wow, you knew Jimmy. Tell me all about him, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and um, he said to me something very, very interesting. He said to me, well, you know, Jimmy didn't play the guitar. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, he played the amplifier. Yeah. And it really hit home when he said that, because it's true. It was all about the tone, the sound, the, the whole tonal thing about what he was doing. You know, right. The sound he played the amplifier. That makes a lot of sense. And if you think about it, when we listen to great, I listen to a lot of jazz. Mm -hmm. I love jazz. Mm -hmm. And the best jazz that I can listen to is the ones where they're not playing crazy atonal fast lines. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about what we call late night driving jazz, where you know the pianos are playing chords and some trumpet players going ba 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 ba, you know, yeah, in, in front of it all. That to me is like gives you the time to drink it in and and taste it, yeah. instead of like fast food, you know. I can see where where guitar players uh, make that mistake quite often. I know I know personally myself. I'm guilty of it too, you know. Uh, oh, I was guilty as hell of it all, all, all my <laughs> early life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, uh, uh, being able to to take a step back and you know thoughtfully, you know, feel and think through, you know, the phrasing and what you're doing and how it all you know works together and stuff like that. You know, most guys they just want to. You know, they want to show off as much as they possibly can in the moments that they got and uh, and kind of take it from there. That was that was one of the attractions to me of guys like, well, let's say, Eric Clapton, for instance. That was the attraction to Eric Clapton for me. It wasn't that I thought he was, you know, the, the most technical player. It was the fact that he played so little, but what he did play was so good. Well, yeah, because guys like Eric and... Obviously, Hendrix and quite a few others, okay? Yeah. Unfortunately, most of them come from the 60s, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. The very fact that guitar had not yet graduated to be this instrument that anyone could play, it really had not yet done that. It was early in its inception. The approach to it was early. The, the technically best players were really not that technically as good as, let's say, the 12-year-old today with a tablature. Yeah. They couldn't even, they wouldn't even have thought of doing that. The fact that I started doing that in the early 70s made people freaked out. <laughs> right. Because guys like me just weren't around doing rock music, playing the kind of speed stuff that I was doing back then, 70 and 71. Yeah. So that was a bit different, but guitar itself had not yet graduated to the point where in order to play it and be considered good, you have to be a virtuoso. So what were they doing with their guitars? They were doing with their guitars what instrumentalists had always done in pop and swing music for years before. They were playing the vocal melodies a little bit differently when they got their break. Mm -hmm. And if you think about songs, that's usually what happens. You've got the singer... He sings the verses, he sings another couple of verses, and then the guitar comes in and basically imitates the music of what the verse was, you know? Think of Nowhere Man, you know, and they do the solo in Nowhere Man. It's basically, the, he's a real Nowhere Man done on the guitar 
for a, for a, for a stanza or a verse, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how music always was. In other words, when you had sax players taking the, the break, they did that. When you had piano players taking the break, they did that. That's what music always was. So when rock music came around in the 60s and started to be psychedelic music and the, the whole, you know, summer of love thing, those guitar players weren't Segovia. <laughs> they didn't have those kind of amazing chops. Yeah. So when the singer, when, when, when Grace Slick would finish her, her you know, White Rabbit line, then the guitar player would sort of play the line, the, the song of White Rabbit when he got his five minutes, you know, or his five seconds. That was normal. So naturally, Eric Clapton, being in that, coming from that background, is doing exactly that. There are people that say that the, that the uh, solo in Sunshine of Your Love it's actually a sort of a misrepresentation of the song Blue Moon. Blue Moon, It's basically <laughs> a standard, wow. but made into a rock way in that key. Wow. So, so that's what we did. That's where I come from. That's my roots. What I did was, I started throwing in more of the wild stuff that really, in the beginning, everyone hated me for it. Believe me, okay? It was, I was criticized like hell. You know, you and your pedals and you and your this. It was like I was a bad guy, among other musicians. But it started to become the norm. Yeah. And when it started to become the norm, I started pulling back and doing it less. Because I found a method by which I could actually employ a method to make me not do that habit habitually. And it was a really simple method. I was thinking about sax players, whom I happen to very much like, and I was thinking, well, they can't play without taking a breath. So I started playing and then taking a breath. <laughs> I started playing only when I was breathing out. <laughs> wow. Wow. And just breathing in and not playing while I breathed in. And that breaks up the phrasing. It yeah. starts acting like you're singing it. And the timing becomes like a person speaking. The next step was, okay, now I'm speaking. What am I going to say? Because, listen, I can write, I can write a, a novel with the same alphabet I can write a good book or I can write a crappy book, but it's all the same alphabet. Just rearrange the letters and you get better words. So the question was, what do I do with my 12 notes, that alphabet, and how do I structure them so that the notes I put together are nicer words rather than just letters? Hmm. And if you think about it, that's how you speak. You don't speak thinking about each letter in a word you said. You speak as groups. Every word you speak is a group, and then when you group words, they become a paragraph. When you group paragraphs, they become a, a, a well, they become a sentence, and then a paragraph, and then a chapter. No. So my approach to guitar, not just guitar, but how I play drums, because I'm a drummer, too. My approach to that is that. It's how does a novelist write his book with the tools that he has? Hmm. with his typewriter, with his alphabet, and with his ideas. So we have our typewriter, <laughs> guitar, hmm. or our drums, 
We have the fingers that move like on a typewriter, but it has to always start in the mind and then before that in the inspiration in the soul, the idea, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Because if I get an inspiration, I get an idea. Like, you've had ideas. You go, oh, I just had a great idea. Watch this. And you play it, right? Right. Where'd the idea come from? <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not you that made the idea. The idea came from some kind of source somewhere, and you found it. That's why you're amazed. Yeah. That's why you go, wow. If you'd have thought it up from the beginning and built it, you wouldn't have been saying, wow. You'd have been expecting it. Yeah. And when it's unexpected like that, it means it comes from a higher source. You tune into it. You say, great, now I've got to put it into motion on my instrument. And whether it's, if I get an idea and I happen to play piano and I get the same idea and I happen to play guitar and I record both versions, if I play them to you, they're going to sound different. They're going to be expressed on a different instrument. Right. I can express a guitar solo that I've had, I can express it on drums. You're not going to know it's the same solo. It's just yeah. being expressed same idea being expressed differently. So that's my approach, uh, James. You know, it's, it's like I try to look at it like, do I want to say anything in the first place? Because sometimes you don't want to say anything anyway. Like, you know, you don't always want to write a song or write a book. Mm -hmm. And the reason I left the majors, uh, major labels in the 80s was because they were always telling me I had to go back and write a new book, even when I didn't want to. Yeah, and it starts to become stale. So, so, so I started making albums three, five years apart, six years apart, instead of every seven months. Right. And I'm happy that I did that. <laughs> you know, I've yeah. been a happy musician ever since I left them. <laughs> well, that makes sense, though. And there's a lot of people that have had those not so good experiences, you know, with the major labels. Well, major, minor, yeah. Look, yeah. we're musicians, right? You're a musician, right? Yep. We just, and anybody listening to this probably, they're not listening to this if they're into cooking, okay? Like, they're into music, okay? Right. So, we're all musicians. We respect the music because we love music. We can't put our finger on whether it's good or bad or where it comes from. We just know it. It's like kind of like you know it when you hear it, you know? Yeah. And as long as we sort of... Don't forget that. We'll always, we'll always be rewarded by the craft that we have. But if we start to think that the craft that we have is a vehicle to get something else, money, fame, girls, whatever, notoriety, we may get that thing we're going for, but we'll lose the reward of the music itself. Mm. And lucky is the guy or girl that's able to maintain the reward of the music and get the other stuff too. I mean, it must have been really nice to be Paul McCartney, where you're, the natural thing you do that rewards you musically also happens to be what everybody wants to buy. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are quite a few people like that. They're, they just naturally exude, without even trying. They like Brian uh, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. can't, can't really write a bad song, and he, it just naturally comes out of him. 
So he could just do his natural thing all day and everyone's going to buy it. Same with McCartney. Same with Billy Joel. Yeah. Same with Elton John. Same with Stevie Wonder. Probably the the uh, Mozart of our generation. Yeah. That's why Tom but Petty... But not that many. <laughs> okay? Yeah. There's not that many if you count them on what? Cup, two hands, three, four hands, you know? <laughs> right. And the problem is there's so many others that want to be that. But I think they lose sight of it because they figure now the motivation for doing music in the first place is to be that guy. Instead of just to get it back from the music, just play it and listen to it and get a reward from the fact that you, you did it. Yeah. So I, I got to ask you, Frank, you know, uh, have you always looked at it from this standpoint, you know, um, I mean, or, or what point in time did did your, you know, thought process begin to change in, you know, in view things like this? Because this, may, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me because you're exactly right. You know, so many people fall into the pitfalls that keep them from, you know, you know, being more, you know, true to themselves or more expressive or whatever but uh you know so so in the early days of frank marino back in the early 70s and that you know uh, were you thinking in these terms as like you did the four parts you know the yeah well here's what happened <laughs> when they first came to me to sign me to do my first album maximum i was 16 years old yeah. and i refused to do it for a long time I did not want to do it. It actually came when I was 15 years old. Wow. And I did not want to do it because what they wanted me to do to join that system was went against my philosophy of music, which I'm telling you now. But I'm able to articulate it now. Yeah. I couldn't sit there at 15 and articulate it, but I knew it. I felt that. I go, oh, no, 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 that's not real. Oh, no, no, that's not, you know, that's sort of like intuitively. I'm articulating now what I intuitively knew at 14, 15 years old. Yeah. Then they talked me into doing that first album, Maxum. And they did that by promising us to have equipment, because young kids who are poor don't have equipment. And that's what we were. Right. So it was like, oh, equipment? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where, where do we record this thing, right? Yeah. It wasn't even about we're making a record, it's going to come out, you're going to be famous. Nobody even said that to me because they knew if they'd have said that to me, I'd have said, go away. Yeah. I was very, very anti-establishment. And I still am. Yeah. So they, they talked me into it. I go in to do Maxum. Well, the first thing I had to do for Maxum was I had to tune my guitar up to standard pitch. I never tuned my guitar to standard pitch. I had it three semitones lower. Wow. And because they wanted a piano player to come in and play on my blues tune, and he wanted to play in the normal key, <laughs> I said, okay, well, I'll have to tune up to E. So that was the very first, you know, compromise. Yeah. And the next compromise was short songs because I was never playing short songs every song I ever did was 15-25 minutes when I was when they came to see me to sign me 
you know, people were were coming to see me play live then. I was playing in cornfields. I was playing in, you know, wherever I could with my friends. We were playing for free. Yeah. And there were thousands of people would come. Wow. And I was always just playing these long, drawn-out jams. Never the same thing twice. Then I go into the studio with this Maxim deal. And it was like, okay, well, this song, now that song, now this song has to be three to five minutes, four minutes. And you start like pulling back and saying, well, okay, uh, I'll try this and I'll put in a little of that. And I threw in my own weird oddities too, like the opening track was just sound effects, okay? And, and I felt bad about it. When it was all said and done, I felt, I didn't want to hear the record. Hmm. Now, I, I liked the songs that I did do back on Home and Buddy and all that stuff, but I didn't really want to listen to it once I'd done it. It was almost like not really what I wanted to accomplish, but I did accomplish it. And by that time, I was signed. So when Child of the Novelty came along, I rebelled a little bit. <clears throat> and I said, if I'm going to do any more of these records, you've got to let me do more of what I'd like to do. So now you get Child of Novelty, longer tunes, more solos, more psychedelic stuff, weird stuff, and then Strange Universe even more. Land of a Thousand Nights, stuff like that. Yeah. They never would have had that on Maxim. <laughs> but they made one mistake from their own standpoint. The only way that they could get me to sign with them was to tell me that I didn't have to be to have a producer who told me what to do. Now the idea of letting a 16-year-old kid be his own producer in 1970 was unheard of. Hmm. Unheard of to spend studio money at 150 an hour on an album for somebody and let the 16-year-old be his own producer was something nobody would think of, but they had to do that to get me in. And what ended up happening was they sold my contract to the next record company. It wasn't like I left their record company and then found another record company. I was literally sold like a commodity. Mm -hmm. And they made money on that deal that I made nothing. You know, they sold me like they bought me for a dollar and sold me for 20, right? Yeah. Now, but that contract went with me. So the next company, which was 20th Century, they had to abide by that clause of let Frank do his own record. Now it was 17, 18. And then when they sold me to Columbia, they had to abide by it. So for my entire career, I never had a producer. So what I was getting was I was getting an education in recording and production without realizing it. I was becoming a recording producer and an engineer. That's sort of what I was getting out of it. But because I was in that position, and then call it the catbird seat, they couldn't really tell me what to play or what to do. They could suggest it till, till the cows came home, and they did every day. But I would say, no, I'm doing this. No, I'm doing a 19-minute tune. No, I'm doing, you know, I would just do what I wanted. <laughs> Which created a lot of friction. Yeah. So I was ne the labels were never my friend. 
Yeah. It was argument after argument after argument until finally in 1983, I said, I'm not arguing with you guys anymore, and I'm not staying with you guys anymore. I'm going on my own. And I'll just record when I want to. So in answer to your question, did I know these things then? I knew them intuitively, and as the years went by, I began to learn how to articulate them, not just to you, but to me, to myself. Yeah. The ideas were crystallizing, and I began to see, hey, this is kind of like this. Hey, this is kind of like that. It's... And so I'm really telling you what I always knew, but didn't always express properly. Yeah. And a couple of times in the early days, if I could go back now, there's a few things I wouldn't do the same way. There's yeah. a few songs I wouldn't do the same way. Yeah. I know the one thing I wouldn't do, 100%, is I wouldn't spend so much time as I did in the mid-70s playing 145 rock blues Because Mahogany Rush was never that. And the, look at the early albums. Yeah. There is no 145 rock blues, you know, King B, Johnny B. Good stuff. Right. There is none of that. That came later on as a function of playing so many big festivals with other bands that played that kind of music. So I would do that facet of my career. But I wasn't going to get up at Cal Jam in front of 330,000 people and play Look At Me or, or some of my early psychedelic stuff, which nobody would know what that was. So you get caught into it. You say, well, you know, we're going to play the blues side of me. We're going to play the rock side of me. Yeah. It's still me, but it's that side. It's, not, it's completely ignoring Strange Universe and all the magical stuff from the early record. So when I did this DVD, which has 57 songs on it, I did a 12-hour show that day, and I tried to do all old stuff from the early parts of my career, the stuff I never was able to do live throughout the 70s to any of the, the uh, stadium crowd. And we've got all those songs on the Requiem for a Sinner and all the stuff that we never did live, yeah, or very rarely did. And so I think people are noticing that because... The people who are getting this DVD now are, I mean, I get a lot of email, and they're saying, you should have done this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I was a fan, but I had Strange Universe, I had Child and Alty, I had Mahogany Rush 4, I had World Anthem, yep. you know, and, and we saw you and, you know, you played Johnny B. Good and King B. Like, <laughs> yep. like, so now I'm sort of back, I've come full circle in a way. Yeah. And my approach now is, you know, if I go out again and play, it's going to be that. It's going to be, I'm 66, it's 50 years ago I did the uh, the first album. I'll be 66 in November. And I'm just going to go out again and be who I was when I was 16. Yeah. 17 and 18. Because I think that is the essence of what my musical career was supposed to be. And it took a little bit of an odd turn. Not that the turn it took wasn't still me. I still am the guy that does the King Bees and the Johnny Bees, and I'm happy to do them. But if you only do that, you're not showing the people the other part of the music, the more introspective stuff. Yeah. It just becomes only rock and roll. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with only rock and roll. 
But if you've got other things to do and say, you should probably try. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know for myself, it was it was definitely some of the early music that uh, is what hooked me uh, myself in that. Um, I actually I actually had uh, tickets to see you uh, in April this year before COVID. And, uh, you know, because of the whole COVID thing and that, of course, you never got to come down. <laughs> but uh, Well, what you would have seen is very much what you'd see on this DVD. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to, to, uh, to the DVD then because... You know, um, it, it, I don't, I don't know. It was your, your style of playing, the way that you approach the guitar is, was unique to me. And I know it's unique to a lot of other people. And I know it's been inspirational to a lot of people because you know what? I know a lot of guitar players. I've been in and around a lot of guitar players and, uh, you know, I get asked constantly when you get an interview, Frank, you know, do you know, Frank, you ever talked to Frank? <laughs> You know, what do you think of Frank? I had one guy one time, this is no lie, and it wasn't that long ago, emailed me a bunch of pictures of your rig from back in the 70s or 80s or whatever. Oh, yeah, the big pedal board. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because he wanted to talk about all Because, you know, a lot of times on the show, that's, you know, the people that I talk with, we get into all that kind of stuff. And so, of course, I get a lot of people. Well, feel free to fire away that anything you want to know about pedals and, and electronics, too, because, you know, I build everything myself. So I, And I don't have any secrets. I'll tell anybody anything. Yeah, I know I know you do it all. You know, that's one of the things that's that's really uh impressive you know i got it i i've always wanted to ask you because i know that you know and i know this is probably a cheesy question but i know that your guitar of choice is has been an sg i i don't think i've ever seen you with anything but an sg so i'm kind of curious as to why that is is it because it just feels good is it because it's comfortable to you or what what is it about the sg well interesting question yeah. Very good. It's got a history, that question, actually, an actual history. Okay. Um, I didn't know what guitars were. When I learned how to play guitar in the hospital at 13, um, I was recovering from a bad situation, and I basically came out of the hospital as a guitar player. Before that, I had been a kid who played the drums. And I couldn't take the guitar that they let me play in the hospital was it belonged to the hospitals and acoustic guitar. So when I got out, my mother said, oh, okay, if guitar makes you happy, I'll get you a guitar, because they wanted anything for me to get better. And so it ha just so happened that the very next-door neighbor of the street that we lived was selling a used guitar. <laughs> be it was a red guitar. That's what it was. Oh, you know, buy his red guitar. I don't know if it was a Gibson SG or whatever. Who knew? Who cared? Right. The, the neighbor has a red guitar. Would you like to have it? She paid $75 for it. And so I got that. So that became, <clears throat> I'd sit in the room all day because I was, I was recovering. And I'd just play it. And the reason, and I tuned the strings way, way down because it made it easier to play. Yeah. It wasn't like I was trying to play some kind of, you know, you hear now today, drop D, drop C. As if it's a fad. I had it drop down just because it made it easier to press the strings. I didn't, it didn't hurt my finger. <laughs> you know, if I did a bar chord, my thumb didn't hurt. Right. Like I did on the acoustic guitar. And so that became the guitar I 
one day, I, I, I did a stu- really stupid thing, and I went into my room, where my, I had the same room in my, with my older brother, and I, I bumped into his stereo, and he says, hey, sell off my stereo, and he said something like that to me, so I took his stereo and I threw it on the bed like an idiot. Well, he took the guitar and he threw the guitar, because at those days it was just like, you know, that's your stereo, that's your guitar, that's your thing. He didn't mean to break it or anything, but it was like, you know, a brother does one thing, you push, you push back, right? And the guitar broke. So now I needed another guitar. It didn't even, I didn't care that it broke. It wasn't like, oh no, you broke my guitar. It was just, it, it, for all intents and purposes, it could have been, uh, I don't know, anything. My uh, bicycle, you know? Yeah. So now I needed another guitar. So what did I know about guitars? Well, we went down and found another guitar, and it was another... I said, I want a red one like I had. It's just got another same thing. <laughs> to a pawn shop. Mm-hmm. I had this red guitar. Look, this is what it looks like. It's cracked, blah, blah, blah. You got another one? Yeah, okay, here's another one. Boom, and paid the guy, and that was my next guitar. <laughs> so that's how I ended up with BSGs. Wow. Then the career started to happen, and just as the early, early career was happening... And by the way, I should tell you this, people shouldn't think badly of my brother Norm for doing that. It was really my fault, you know? <laughs> I'm the guy that started it, you know? Yeah. But in any case, um, well, when my career is starting, we're playing in a cornfield somewhere, and it starts raining, so we run for a tent to hide, and when we come back, my guitar was stolen. Oh. So now we need another guitar. <laughs> 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 I went back to the same pawn shop and said, hey, you know that red guitar you sold me? Yeah. You got another one? Yeah, here. <laughs> another red SG. Anyway, the second SG that was stolen ended up coming back to me 12 years later, but that's a whole other story. Wow. But that's where the SGs started. Yeah. And then you get into the record and you start playing and then you realize that your favorite guitar players, they don't play these red guitars. Like Jimi Hendrix became my favorite guitar player, and he played some weird guitar called a Stratocaster. I didn't know what that was. It sounded like the name of a car. <laughs> and and so I go to a music st- store one day, and I, I says, oh, there's that Jimi Hendrix guitar on the wall. Hey, I, why don't I buy one of those just to see what it feels like? So I bought this 62 Stratocaster, and I didn't really feel comfortable playing it, especially standing up, because... The strap's in a different place, and it hangs really funny, and doesn't have all the frets, and you can't reach the high notes because the body's in the way. So I really rarely played it. I would play it like when I wanted to play stuff in the first position, you know, low down on the neck, you know? Mm-hmm. And even on my albums, I would take it out to do some rhythm tracks because rhythm tracks are usually played down at the low position, you know? And um, that sort of became how I got into playing the Stratocaster once in a while. I loved the sound of it, but I didn't like the way it felt. Yeah. And then the same thing happened. I got a Telecaster, and they did the same thing with that. And I still have those Strat and Tele's like today. And they're, as, they're as unused as they were then. <laughs> in 1970, 69. Yeah. You know? So, in answer to your question, the SG just became the easiest guitar to play. Yeah. And I never really wanted to play anything else because I didn't want to have to work hard to play music. Mm. 
The whole thing about playing music was supposed to be not work hard. I never practiced. Ever. <laughs> I wouldn't even know how to practice. If I pra if you could call practicing playing with guys, you could call that practicing. Let's go to band practice or whatever. Just meant you were going to go jam. Yeah. But no one, I never sat down and, I wouldn't even know how to sit down and practice scales or reach or movements or whatever. I wouldn't know how to do that. It's like, is there even a method? Well, so I played a lot, but I don't have a practice thing, and I wouldn't do it anyway because it's too much work. So and enjoying your music shouldn't be work. <laughs> so are, I want to enjoy work. There's a lot of other things you can work on besides music. <laughs> <laughs> so so are you saying that the only time that you that you really picked it up and played it was when you were in a band setting? No. Oh, okay. I was always playing it okay. with people. I got it. <laughs> they didn't have to be in my band. I got it. In those days, people got together with their guitars or their drums or whatever it was at their friend's house. The same way people today get together, kids get together to go to their friends to play with a PlayStation. Yeah. But they don't bring their PlayStations over to their friend's house so that they could learn to be programmers. That's not their intention of playing with their PlayStation with their friends. Right. They're doing it just to have fun, to escape. Yeah. And that, that's, we didn't have PlayStations. We didn't have hardly, we didn't have color TV for crying out loud. Right. There were three stations on the television and nothing on the radio. So it was like, you know, FM radio only started playing, you know, FM style songs in like 1969. Yeah. Okay. So there was nothing to do when you got up in my day, when you got up in the morning, it wasn't even morning, but 10 in the morning, noon, whatever, when you got up, you didn't sit in the house. You immediately left the house. Yeah. You didn't come back to the house till it was time to go to bed. <laughs> yep. You know, nobody was hanging around their house. So you'd go out, you'd say, I'm going to go to Bobby's place, or I'm going to go to Joe's place, or we're going to go, hey, let's set up our guitars on, in the backyard and play the music there. Let's go to the park and get a circle of friends all look like a bunch of hippies, and you're all playing, singing songs, you know, popular tunes. That's how we had fun. So why would you ever think that you would do that in a way of working style? To, like, we're going to go get better at it and work at it. That makes no sense. All of a sudden, it's not fun. Yeah. My mentality was, and still is, if it isn't fun, well, don't do it. To this day, there's not a guitar in my house that's in the case. Because if I want to play, I don't want to have to go and get something out of a case and tune it up. I just want to pick it up and play. Yeah. So I've got a guitar in one room and a guitar in another room and a guitar in another room. And if I want to play, just grab it and I play it. If it's too much work, I don't want to play it. Huh. That's, my, that's my approach. Make it easy. Make it as easy as you can. I use light, light strings so that I don't feel them. Consequently, I had to become an electronics expert to build amplifiers that boosted the sound because with light strings, it sounds like a banjo. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, and so I get around it that way. But look, guys, you know, anybody listening to this, I always say this. 
Use your ears, not your eyes. Listen. Learn to listen to the guys you're playing with. It's the most important thing of all. Mm -hmm. Just like you would do in a conversation, you listen. And when you get your chance to speak, say something worthwhile. Yeah, that's really good advice. Really good. And if you don't know how, use the tricks. Play only when you breathe out. (laughs) Start using the tricks. It'll become second nature after a while. Really? Yeah, it becomes totally second nature. Think about a horn player. He has to breathe out to play. Yeah. A trumpet player, a trombone player, a saxophone player, anybody playing a wind instrument cannot play while he's sucking in. He has to take breath. And even a violinist has to change the direction of his bow. Yeah. So guitar, unfortunately, is one of the few instruments in which you can accompany yourself. Everything else is monophonic. So piano, guitar, harp, perhaps vibe, you know, keyboard-style instruments, Mm -hmm. you can accompany yourself. But every other instrument, the violin, you can't accompany yourself, cellos, you know, everything's single sound. And so you need other players to play with. And because you can accompany yourself on a guitar or a piano, you do tend to fall into the trap of overdoing it. Mm. You know, you're not listening as much to the other guy. Because you, you're playing a chord and there's six notes in it, or at least three that are repeated. So you're sort of already hearing what you need to hear. So it promotes this idea that you don't need to listen to the other guy. And you end up going off on a tangent. But if you listen to the other guy, you're going to play really, really good lines. Because what he does is going to inspire you to do something different every time you get a chance to do a line. It's really good advice. You know, it, it, it's rare to hear somebody talk in terms like that, Frank. It really is, you know. Um, it, it really is. Well, I think it's, don't you agree, though, that it's kind of intuitive? It's kind of common sense? It's kind of a common sense approach? Anyway, from my point of view, I think it's pretty natural. I yeah. think it's what I think it's what people would do if they just stopped for a second and and think about it. Yeah. I'm not like inventing anything new. I'm, I'm basically reminding myself of what I already knew. <laughs> right. You know, all my life. Well, yeah, if I, if I take a step back and I look at, you know, some of the people that I would consider really great players and typically the people that I, I pay attention to are usually not the ones that are on the covers of the magazines and the ones getting all the attention and they're they're usually guys that are focused on on their phrasing. They're they're focused on the entire song, as a and and when they get their moment, of course, like you just said, you know, speaking their 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 phrases to to fit into you know accompany everything else that's going on. And I, I find those guys. One of those guys is, and you probably know him, is Mark Goldenberg. Mark. Mm-hmm. Mark Goldenberg is one of those guys that can, 
you know, he, he knows how to phrase. He knows when to talk and when not to talk. You know, he knows he's paying attention to everything that's going on. And I really admire players like that because it's it's really difficult because for guys like me that grew up in the in the 70s when, you know, when I feel that, you know, guitar music was really great, uh, it was it, it got to the point to where it was just, you know, just like, I forgive me for using these terms, but guitar became diarrhea of the you know the mouth. This is a bleh, it's yeah. all out there. Yeah, yeah. You know? Sure, sure. And look, among the very famous ones, there are guys like this dude that do know how to phrase. Like for instance, Mark Knopfler, Dire Straits. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. This guy can he plays the right thing at the right time, and yeah. it's not always over the top. Larry Carlton. Yes. Another guy that does it. It's more jazzy, but he does do it yes. right. Yeah. Um, the guy for, uh, what's the name? The guy that has the thing with his wife um, today. He's a blues player, plays with a slide. Oh, uh, Derek Trucks. Yeah, Trucks. Yeah. So this is the right notes at the right time when yeah. it comes in. There are guys today that do that. Yeah. Tommy Emmanuel is, is one of the guys that, you know, I think the, the, you call it the best, the best in the world, because he has, sort of has everything. He's got the rhythm, he's got the timing, he's got the surefoot, he's got amazing stuff he's doing with his hands, and he does it on an acoustic guitar. Never yeah. mind an amplifier. You know, there are guys that do do that. The problem is there's a plethora of guys that don't do that, and it and the other guys are kind of buried in the in the in the background. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's almost like if you went to a rest a restaurant in a cafeteria and you're trying to pick out a conversation, and all you end up getting is snatches of every conversation. Yeah. You know, it's you're not really getting any conversation. Maybe someone sitting right next to you is saying something really interesting and that you get to hear but if the guy saying something interesting is 16 tables away you might hear the odd word yeah and it gets lost mm. and don't think that that only happens in the public way that happens among musicians too i've been in many many situations with some of the you know the cream of the crop musicians and they too make that diarrhea problem yeah many yeah and what do I do when that happens? I'll tell you what I do. I just stop. Sometimes you get invited to a jam. And it happens to be one of those jams that's just like a dog's breakfast. Everyone's playing over everyone else. <laughs> I just basically, I just stop. I just don't play. Yeah. Because anything I do is just going to make it worse. It's the one reason I never liked doing the G3, you know, those tours, those guitar tours right. there that did, they had 18 different guys and then 10 minutes each, and then they all jammed together. Now, the 10 minutes each part, I don't mind, but it's when they all jam together. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They're not jamming. They're not inventing. They're, they're waiting for their chance to do their solo. Yeah. And there's that word again, solo, you know? And I just don't want to be, I don't want to do that. Hmm. How many times did I get on a, on a band stage, you know, because after gigs, sometimes you go to the local hotel and there's a band playing and you say, hey, can we sit in or can I sit in with you? You know, nobody knows about it. You're just doing it to have fun, right? Yeah. And how many times have I said to those guys, don't, do not announce I'm playing with you. Do not do my songs. 
I want you to do all the songs you would be doing if I wasn't here and let me sit in the back and try to fit in as if I'm not there. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah. That's the most fun. Even if I don't know the tune, just let me sit in and listen and play along with it. That's, I, that's the most fun I've ever had playing guitar. That kind of situation. Yeah. And to this day when I'm on tour, my favorite time of day is sound check. Hmm. I always get there early. I, that's assuming I get one. If I'm headlining, I get a sound check. If I'm not, they never give me one. But, but if, I, if I'm headlining a gig, it's my own gig, I get to get there at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I literally play from 2 o'clock till the doors open. Wow. And then I go do my show at night. Yeah. yeah. That's my favorite time because in the sound check, holy crap, if you walked into one of my sound checks, you'd hear songs you'd never believe we would play. And they're not just mine. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really a big fan, personally, of, of doing other people's music. That's way more fun for me than doing my own tune. Interpreting a song someone else wrote or played, and it might not even have to be a guitar tune, is way more fun for me as a musician than, okay, I'm going to do Dragonfly, I'm going to do Juggernaut, I'm going to do, you know. Because think about this. If you, go to a, if you go to a family reunion or a New Year's Eve party with the family or Christmas or whatever, and there's a piano, and Uncle Joe or Uncle Bob gets on the piano and starts, you know, playing stuff. Nobody says, play your originals. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. If I picked up a guitar at someone's, and we're going to start singing Mr. Tambourine Man or whatever everybody knows, or even We Will Rock You, nobody says, no, no, play your originals. That's just not going to be fun for anybody. Yeah. And even if you were Paul McCartney, no one would tell him, play your originals. And neither would he do it. He'd be there doing old Lang Syne and everything else. Yeah, that's and funny. This is where music is really the fun part, when you can just use it as that, that means of communicating with people and smiling and having them smile back at you because of the sound or the feeling that it gives you, then rather than performing and having people say, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always, you know, I, uh, I put out nine albums and, uh, you know, I've had experience on labels, not major labels, but, you know, smaller labels. And, uh, but I've always tried to do other people's stuff more than my own as well. Um, I, I like that too. You know, I, I like interpreting somebody else's uh, music uh, probably a lot more than I, I like coming up with my own stuff and doing my own stuff as well. And still to this day, you know, when I when I play, you know, like I'm playing Saturday, I got two shows at a theater in Central Illinois. And, you know, out of all that, you know, two shows, I'll do two songs, three songs that might be mine and I'll, you know. But I, I, I find myself doing the obscure stuff that, you know, isn't the stuff that people 
are used to listening to. You know, it's very rare you get somebody go, hey, was that, you know, by so-and-so? Because a lot of people don't know, you know, those songs. But I really enjoy doing that. You know, my last EP, you know, only had one original on it. And, you know, and I did somebody else's stuff. But I enjoy it. I like it so much more. I don't know if that's bad, but... Do you remember the, the band Vanilla Fudge? Yeah, oh yeah. Their whole thing was all covered. Yeah. Every yeah. song. Yeah, you're exactly right. Interpreted as they would interpret it. Yeah. Carmont and those guys. So, look, until the Beatles came along, prior to the Beatles, nobody did their own songs. Yeah. Ever. Didn't happen. Yeah. It was perfectly normal for an artist, the greatest, the less greatest, whoever they were, Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, you name it, to do songs they didn't write. Yeah. It was normal. That's why we have publishing laws. Yeah. To make sure yeah. the writer got something and the musician got something. That's why they're there. They were written into the law hundreds of years ago. So, but then the Beatles come along and they just happen to be performers who also write their own music. Now every record company said, no, we got to have guys that write their own music. Yeah. So now every musician thought that they should be writing their own music. Hmm. Well, let me tell you something. As good as some musicians are, not everyone is a great writer. Yep. It's, just, it's not an insult to tell, you, tell them that. Look, we all read books. Any one of us can write a story, right? Hmm. Nothing hard about writing a story. We're not all great novelists. <laughs> right. And no one would be insulted if you wrote a story and you said, well, you know, it isn't quite as good as, you know, Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. It'll be okay. Yeah, I know it isn't. You know? Yeah. We're not all novelists. That's a talent to be a writer who's a novelist. To be good, a wordsmith, if you want to call it that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for some reason, the industry began to think, well, unless you're a good writer, too, you're nobody. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to populate all these record companies with a bunch of guys who just by nature aren't great writers. And mm. then they had to sell it to the world, telling them the song was better than it is. Yeah. And so started the what I call the P.T. Barnum method of building the music industry. You know, he made a lot of money telling people it was the greatest show on earth, yeah. and people would say, oh, it's, I heard it's the greatest show on earth. Wow, I'm going to the greatest show. What did he really have? A couple of bearded ladies, some freaks, and a <laughs> A couple of elephants running around. Yep. Yeah. So you can tell people stuff, and they're going to go flocking to it. So the industry, the music industry started saying, have you heard this artist? Oh, this is the best. Oh, this artist will blow your mouth. Wow, it's amazing. And then they pay the, the AM radio to play the song over and over and over and over again. And they're basically, what do you call it? Not hypnotizing, but when you talk something and talk somebody into something, there's a word for that, you know. They're basically doing that. Yeah. You know... You know how you know that it's worked on you? When you say, yeah, I didn't like that song at first, but it kind of grew on me. <laughs> and you don't know why. Yeah. That's when you were 
you know what the word is. I can't remember it right now. <laughs> brainwashed. Brainwashed. There you go. Yeah, that's how you know you're brainwashed. Yeah. When you didn't like it, and then you did. Yeah. You heard it so much, and then you did. It kind of grew on me. Yeah. So the industry was expert at doing that. They hired people who knew how to do that. Promotion men. Yep. Madison Avenue. They figured if you could sell somebody on the idea that a burger made in 30 seconds was as good as a steak dinner, you could make a lot of money. <laughs> and they did. Yeah. Fast, we called it fast food. Yeah. Not that the fast food isn't good. To some people, it's fine. And I eat it too. But to try to equate it as the best meal you ever had would be something disingenuous. Right. Wow. And the industry is very, very good at doing that. Very, very good. They're expert. That's what they do. Hmm. People, if all you ever heard on a radio station, if you went to an island where there was one radio station and they only played 10 songs, at some point, you'd like all those songs, and then at some point after, you'd hate all those songs. <laughs> but it can change your mind one way and the other. It can. So i got to ask you, Frank, uh, you know, do you have plans once, you know, once things change with the whole you know, outcome of COVID well, and stuff like that. Do you have Yeah, I, I was, look, I was supposed to go out in April. Yeah. Then they said no. I said, what do you want me from me? Okay, we moved it to September. We're supposed to go out in September. It's fully ready to go. And then a couple of states said I couldn't get in. Yeah. So now I couldn't go. Now we moved it to next September. Yeah. I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. But... I'm ready to go. I'm ready. I'm locked and loaded and ready to go. I've been ready to go since January. You know? Yeah. So this whole thing, I, I suspect it's going to end and everything's going to get back to normal and sooner than people think. And then we're going to go, hopefully. <laughs> right. But who knows? Who knows at this point? You know, like, who knows if someone's going to come up with a new idea about why, why we can't go? You know? Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. You know, gasoline might jump to six bucks a gallon and then I can't go. Yeah. You know, like it's 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 really it's really something that I have no control over. All I have is the willingness to do it. Yeah. And I'll do it like I've always done it. It's there's nothing special. So I worked on all my gear and I fixed all my pedals and, you know, redid my amps and so I might as well clean out those old tubes. And, you know, I did all that <laughs> stuff. Actually, I'm glad I did because I found problems that probably would have quit on me on the tour. Yeah. Got rid of that and, you know, fixed my preamp up a little and saw, saw found a tear in my speaker. Oh, good thing I found that, you know. Yeah. And I'm still, I'm just ready to, ready to rock, but, who knows what's going to happen? And, and quite honestly, I, I, at this point, I don't even know who will come with me. Yeah. Like everyone says they'll come with me, but what if they say, well, no, we don't want to do it anymore? i got to find other guys. Right. 
I hate doing that. Yeah. That's always the worst. But it's, it's, it's also very easy to get in my group. Yeah. Like, I don't have a criteria, hard criteria to join my band. Yeah. Drummers probably have to be really something, because I'm a, a drummer, and I sort of want to be able to have the guy do anything. But the other guys, man, it's like, hey, man, if you can listen and you can play and you can find your way through it, I don't care if you make some mistakes. Big deal. Who cares? Who gives a crap, you know? Yeah. Oh, you miss a note. Okay. Tomorrow you won't. Like, that's the way I look at it. Yep. No, I miss a lot of notes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's hard to tell. Huh? I said it's hard to tell sometimes. Well, you know, it's... You know when you play guitar, you know that if you if you play the wrong note for a split second, you can slide up one fret or down one fret, and you'll be in the right note somewhere. <laughs> right, right, right. right. It happens real quick, cle- real quick, right? Yeah. A little slur, you know, a little slur. Oops, slur. Everyone thinks you did it on purpose. You know what that's like. Yeah. yeah. You can't be wrong two notes in a row, like because if you just move to one the next fret, that's some in some of the part of the key you're in. Yeah. No matter what. How wrong can you be? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well. And besides, those little things, when they get in there and you fix them up like that quickly, sounds like you did it on purpose and it sounds like a great line. Yeah. Wow, what a cool line. I got to learn that. Yeah. <laughs> I got news for you. I heard myself do mistakes, like when we'd be recording and you come back in and you, you listen to the playback, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a total mistake, like not just a chord or whatever, but the wrong slur on the guitar. And it was like, hey, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> that actually works. Yeah. yeah. Why didn't I think of that? That's, that's, that's great. I got to learn the mistake now. You yeah. know, make sure I don't, don't forget to do the mistake. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that's I t- a cool part of it, James. That's what's cool. Yeah. End of the day, we're all just the kids we were when we started. Yeah, well, I wasn't a kid when remember I started. Remember when you started? Remember? I wasn't a kid, you know. I, I you remember know, what it felt like. I well, yeah. <laughs> it was I, fun. It, it well, yeah. It was it was kind of fun, you know. I I always wanted to be a guitar player when I was young, grade school, junior high, high school. I always wanted to be a guitar player, but I wasn't ever willing to to do anything to, you know. To, to to actually do it or to be good at it or anything like that. I'm I'm that guy that had a guitar in the corner with an amp, you know what I mean. And every now and then I you know turn it on, but I it sounded horrible and 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 because it sounded horrible, I would just leave it in the corner. It wasn't until I was I was in my twenties, late twenties. And I decided that I wanted to play guitar, not just play guitar, but I wanted to do it for a living because I had always absolutely, everybody that I was, you know, I don't want to say idolized, but everybody that I admired were guitar players and I was always drawn to the guitar. And so uh, I bought a guitar like, like kind of like what you did. I got it, went at a pawn shop. I got a. I got a Squire Strat and a PV amp at a pawn shop, and um, I was working n- uh, nights, late nights, and so I would play 
not real. I don't know if you call it plan. I would do whatever I got to do in order to try to make something out of this guitar come out of it. And I just, I wouldn't put it down. You know, I had it in my hands for hours and hours and hours. And then at one point in time, uh, I convinced some local guys to get in a band. And uh, the guy who uh, was the drummer in that band, his name was Kevin Johnson. And at that time, Kevin was playing drums for Buddy Guy. Because I live outside of Chicago. And he was playing Uh drums for Buddy Guy. And then he started taking me up to Chicago. And he started introducing me to people and putting me in situations, which I think was the best thing for me. Because kind of like what you said earlier, you know, I got an opportunity to be around other people that, you know, just wanted to play. And it kind of catapulted me, you know, to... uh, to really wanting to, I don't want to say hone skills, but I, I wanted to be better. You know, I wanted to be able to stand right, on that puts stage. You, it puts you in on the hot seat. In other words, yeah. you're playing with guys that are better than you are. Oh yeah, and you, and you get your chance to get in there. You end up being better. It's, yeah, it, it, it can't, you can't help it. We see that with hockey teams. I'm a hockey fan. A great player makes his line mates better. Yeah, it, it's it's. And it happens in sport. It happens in many, many things. Yeah. If you play with good people, even if you're not a great player, you will become better. You, you can't help it. Yeah. Rising, as they say, rising tide floats all boats. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and if, you, if you get on that tide, you'll float with them. Yeah. You won't sink. That's why you ended up doing what you did. If you hadn't have found those people to do that with you, you might have still had the guitar sitting in the corner and hating the way it sounded. Yeah. Exactly. Because it wasn't your friend at the time. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I tell people because, you know, I get tons of emails and messages and stuff like that, you know, uh, because of the podcast and, you know, and everything that I do when it comes to the guitar and that. And I always tell people when they ask me, I said, one of the best things that you can do is surround yourself with people that are much better than you, because, you know, you're going to, you're going to be forced or you're going to be educated or you're going to be, you know, drawn to, uh, to improve, you know, you'll either get better or or you'll kind of wither away, I guess. I don't know, but I think it's good advice. So I don't play bass, Frank, you know, I mean, I can, but I don't. But uh, if your bass player doesn't show up for gigs, I'm going to get a bass. And since you don't care who <laughs> plays with you, I'm going to call you. <laughs> okay. That sounds good. It'll be educating. That sounds good. No, no, it won't be good at all. You know that. It'll be fun, but it won't be good. <laughs> you know, You know, I appreciate, Frank, you taking this time. I've really enjoyed talking to you uh, because... Uh, I don't know. You you just you you went down a path that I wasn't really wasn't wasn't really thinking about going, but it turned out to be, you know, it's it's really uh, inspirational. And uh, what are you uh, what are you using, James, as your as your axe and as your amp and as your pedal? Well, um, Frank, I got I got more than I know what to do with. Uh, my my main rig that I play out with, I use a uh, Fouche Overdrive mm-hmm. or a Fouche um, uh, Full House 50. I play through a Mesa Boogie uh, 212 typically. 
Um, sometimes if I run a stereo rig, I'll use the Fouche rig with the Mesa Boogie, and I'll use a two-rock. I got the TS-1 okay. or the classic uh, reverb, and I'll run it also through either a Marshall 212 or a um, uh, Mesa Boogie 212. I like the vertical slant 212s that they do. And yeah. so th- those are typically, even though I've, you know, got a ton of amps, I've got some Marshall Plexi stuff and I've got, you know, some Mesa Boogie stuff like the Lone Star and the Mark II and stuff like that. The Fouche and the Two Rock are typically my main uh, amps that I like to play out with. Uh, as for gu- guitars, to be honest, I've always been a Fender guy. Uh, but last year I turned around and I bought a Ibanez Prestige, you know, one of the Japanese ones. Yeah. And I absolutely love it. It, it's, uh, it's a great guitar. It's weird though for you to go from Fender to Ibanez because Fender has that nice, you know, tight radius on the neck and Ibanez is flat as a pancake. (laughs) It's like the neck becomes so much flatter. It is, it is, it is different. You know, and like I said, I've always played a Strat and a Tele. Um, I, I, I use a Les Paul sometimes. I have a couple of SGs. Um, I have an SG that I modified. There's a guy in, in uh, New Jersey that has a company called the Jersey Shore Guitar Garage, and he makes custom wiring harnesses. And I put this 21-position push-push wiring harness system in my SGs. And uh, they sound great, but unlike you, I don't like the way they feel on me. And so uh, so I typically don't play them. I don't know. Maybe it's because I don't know why, but I just don't like the way they feel on me. I like the fact that they're light, and I like I like the tone that you can get with uh, with an SG, but I just don't like the way they feel. So, And then when it comes to pedals, I mean, it really goes all over the place. Um, I, I use a... Um, the Boss FET preamp. Oh, yeah. I use it. I use a Univox. Uh, I'm not a Univox, but a Univive from Full Tone. Uh, I've got one of the uh, early models of the Octaver, you know, from uh, from Boss as well, one of the early days. And then when it comes to overdrive, I use the uh, Free the Tone. Um, I use their Fire Mist. And I use the Ethos um, that's made by Robbie Hall, or the Overdrive or the Clean Fusion, one of the two. I use a Klon sometimes. Okay. Oh, yeah. And then uh, for delays, I like the Flight Time by Free the Tome, but I also like the Strymon Timeline and the Wampler uh, Tape Echo. Mm. And then I'll use a couple of um, uh, EQs. I like the EQ after my overdrives. I don't know, kind of clean it up a little bit. The the preamp has an EQ on it too, which I like, and then I use an EQ as my uh, boost pedal. And another now, well, that's, that's I, a lot of money you're playing through, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a lot of money. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think I got around those two rocks. Those two rocks are not inexpensive. Okay, it's like. All of that stuff you're mentioning is not cheap. No, it, it's not, you know. Uh, but, you know, I played and I played and I toured for 17 years. And then in 2012, I stopped. And um, I did my last show in Hollywood with uh, Billy Branch. I don't know if you're familiar with Billy Branch, the harmonica player. 
But uh, we did a show at the El Portal Theater in North Hollywood, and that was my last show in 2012. I pretty much put it all away, and I went into, uh, I got a corporate job as an executive for a national company. And that's that's what I did. And then I did my radio show for a few years. And then last year, I got the itch to play again. And so I did an, uh, I did an EP, which was my ninth one. And I did it with uh, Johnny Gerpart on bass, who played with Slash and Richie Kotzen. And uh, Michael Lazier, who was Walter Trout's drummer. Uh-huh. And so I, I did a I did a CD, and then the whole COVID thing happened, and everything kind of fell apart. And that's when I got the idea to jump back into radio and do the podcast. And I I'm like everybody else; I'm waiting for things to to clear up. I mean, I've done a few shows. I've played a, a couple of times a month, you know, over the last couple of months. And um, but you know, I'm hoping to go back in the studio in January and re-record and get back out there but uh do you get a lot of people for your podcast uh there's over a hundred and thirty thousand people that listen right now that's good i started it july 1st believe it or not Mm. and so uh but you know um you know i've i've been in marketing and advertising so i i know how to push this stuff pretty good and and I, you know, pretty diverse in who I have on the show. You know, I've, um, you know, I've got a lot of great, I've had, you know, like uh, Steve Lukather and Larry Carlton, Robin Ford, and, you know, a variety of other people that were on my regular radio show. And then this time around, I got a lot of those same people lined up, Orianti and Kurt Fletcher. And, um, you Is know. it mostly that you'll talk about gear and stuff? or? Well, you know what, Frank? It, it, it's just like this. I try. I try not to make it an interview. I try to just have a conversation, and I usually get where I need to go with that conversation. And some people—that's what we talk about—is their gear. Some people will talk about their history, you know. And then some people, you know, it goes into a variety of other things. It's never the same. But um, but the people that are tuning in, for the most part. You know, most of them are, are players. You know, there are people that either play guitar or learn guitar or been around uh-huh. it, fascinated by it, whatever it is. Because I have builders, I have guitar builders, I have amp builders, I have, you know, pedal builders. I have, inst- I've had instructors from Berkeley, you know, and then I get a variety of artists across all genres of music to get a, a deep perspective in that. And, uh, and then of course, you know, I try to touch on some people that I find fascinating, people that have influenced me, like yourself, you know. Um, I try to have people like that as well because, you know, uh, to me that's it's a real treat to be able to to have a conversation with you and other people like you. To pick who, your, who were your influences, James? Uh, well, as I said a minute ago, you were, you were one of my biggest influences. For sure, Buck Dharma from Blue Oyster Cult was a big influence oh, yeah. of mine. Oh yeah, you know, um, you know. So uh, yeah, you know. And then as time went on, you know, my my influences really changed because there was a lot of the rock bands, guitars from the seventies, were were probably my thing. Hendrix, of course, was was an influence. But then as time went on, my I started broadening, you know, my 
my perspective, you know, what I listened to. And I started listening, you know, to jazz and contemporary jazz and country and, and different stuff. And so, like, right now, if I had to say, you know, who are the people that I paid attention to the most, you know, Andy Timmons is probably one of the guys that I pay attention to a lot, you know, um, 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 Martin Miller, um, uh, Tom Quayle, Josh, uh, Josh Smith, you know, uh, Sean Tubbs, you know, uh, people like that are people that, you know, they're really, they're, to me, they're just fascinating players. You know, Robin Ford, of course, has always been one of mine. So, you know, it's kind of eclectic. It's all over the map for oh, me. Oh, that's good. You know? That's a good thing. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah, you know, and it's it's changed, you know, who I am as a player because in the early days, all I did was blues. All the people I played with, like Buddy Miles and Chaka Khan and Junior Wells, and I played with all the, the Chicago cats, you know, like Lefty Diz and Buddy Guy and Nate Turner and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, those were my main influences. So I did blues for a really, really long time. And then in two, I like I love to play blues. Yeah. Okay, like blues is the kind of thing where you can play fifty-five bars, but I don't want to listen to it all night. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I'm that way too. Yeah. I'm that way you know, too. It's like okay, uh, I heard the I heard the slow blues, I heard the fast blues, I heard the mid-time blues, mid-tempo blues, and now I'm done. But if you're playing it, yeah. You just want to go on and on. It's just, just, but I try to play blues very differently than most people play it. Yeah, I try to. Like, I, I like to use a lot of sort of jazz passing chords and sixteen bar blues instead of twelve. And right. you know, that's my my way of approaching blues. It always was that. I I really don't like twelve bar straight up blues. Yeah, like tonic only. Yeah. I just not that I don't like it, but I really it doesn't do anything for me. You yeah. know. Well, your version of "Play the Blues for You" that you did for uh, Mike Varney for his label—that mm-hmm. was the best version of that song I've ever heard. And it's it's because of those jazzy riffs that you put in there. It's because of that that influence that you uh, and that interpretation of the song. I mean, it was—I mean, it's completely different than, of course, how Albert King did it and how anybody I've ever heard do it. You know what I mean? It's same with same with the way you did, you know, some of the the Hendrix stuff. Like when, like in All on the Watchtower, the part in All on the Watchtower that always fascinated me is that one, at one point in time you did this this octave thing. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Where you did this octave work, and you know something that you wouldn't normally hear in that song or or in one of right. his songs in that, and uh, that that was the. For me, you know, those are the kinds of things that really stand out to me that, you know, that are the things that influence me or or push me to try something different in that. But, yeah. The, you've only, heard... the only time I've covered a tune, I covered a few tunes in my life, but not as many as people think. I've only covered about nine tunes. Yeah. But but um, the only one that I, I really changed, I, I changed two tunes that I covered and completely changed them. I don't normally do that. I try to keep the original a little bit like it was. You know what the tune is, you know, like in Watchtower. But uh, but I changed Norwegian Wood. Yeah. Very much, and I changed Red House. Yeah. My my version of Red House on Real Live, and it's also on the DVD, is just you know if you didn't call it Red House, then why are you calling it Red House? Cause it's not Red <laughs> House at all. 
yeah. you know, it's another blues tune that just happens to have those lyrics. Yeah. But that's that, the very few times that I've said I'm going to literally change it up were those two uh, tracks. I think everything else I ever did, whether it was Roadhouse Blues or, you know, so, they always sort of sound like a, a, an expression of the original. Yeah. And um, and I think it should be usually that, an expression of the original. After all, why hijack it from somebody, right? Right. But in the case of, um, of Norwegian Wood, that was accidental. <laughs> yeah. In the case of Red House, it was accidental. So both times I've really changed the tunes, it was totally by accident. Yeah, well, they were great. <laughs> but your phrasing in can't uh, uh, play the blues for you, I mean, it was... It was a game changer for me at, at that point in time, you know, as a player. It was like, you know, because I'd never heard anybody approach that song or those types of songs with that type of phrasing. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some cats, you know, like Robin Ford and stuff like that that can do some really cool jazzy stuff over some blues things. But, you know, being a huge Albert King fan like I was and doing a lot of his music back in those days, to hear that kind of phrasing in that song was just... It was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always liked Albert King, okay? Yeah. And when I first heard Albert King, was long after I had been actually playing, you know, like in the 70s. Yeah. And I remember I was struck because somebody played me a video or a tape or something at the time, which was Albert King on TV in the 50s or something, okay, black and white. And I, I saw this and I went... Oh my God! This guy's playing Hendrix lines, and Hendrix isn't even out yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember saying that. It says this guy's playing Jimi Hendrix lines, yeah. and yet Hendrix is not even out yet. So I thought, okay, now I know what Jimmy is listening to. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was quite amazing. So when when Varney asked me to do the Albert King thing. And he, he wanted me to do two things. He wanted me to do a Stevie Ray one as well, and I really didn't want to do one of Stevie's tunes because I was getting so much help about the Hendrix thing. I said, it's all I need for people to tell me I'm copying Stevie Ray Vaughan. Right. So I says, yeah, I'll do I'll do a tune he did, which was I'll play the blues for you. Right. But I'll do it my way, right? Mm-hmm. But on the Albert King, it was a real feather in my cap to be able to do an Albert King tune, you know? It was yeah. like, oh, cool. This is the guy, you know? This yeah. is the man. Yeah, well, you did a you did an amazing job on that song. As a matter of fact, it, it, it this is no lie that when new people that I I come in contact with when they start talking about Albert King or they start talking about some of his songs, I'll always say, "Yeah, but did you hear Frank Marino's version of that song?" And when they hear it, you know everybody's taken back by it because once again, it's just a completely different approach. Uh-huh. You know, so. You know, Frank, I really appreciate, you know, you giving me so much time. That's extremely gracious of you. My uh, pleasure. Call me anytime. (laughs) All right, there you go. It's Frank Marino. That's right, the one and only Frank Marino from Mahogany Rush. I want to thank Frank so much for participating in Guitar Talk. It was an absolute pleasure to be able to speak with him again. Make sure that when uh, things open up and he's out on tour that you go and support him, you know, and uh, continue to listen to his music, man. And if you're a guitar player and you're playing his stuff, you know, good for you. You know, Frank's an inspiration and he's a great player. So uh, once again, 
thanks to Frank Marino for being a part of the show. You know, we got some things that we got to tell you about. You know what? We just launched our Patreon. Yeah, you can now be a Guitar Talk with Jimmy Warren Patreon. And that's right. And there's some really cool uh, perks to participating in that and helping to support our show. It's for as little as $5 a month all the way up to $20 a month. And there's a lot of really cool things in there that you can get uh, for helping us out. What you do is you just help keep the show on the road. You know what I mean? You keep the lights on and keep the guests coming and keep it rolling in that because, you know, we're bringing you some pretty big names, you know, some really cool players in that. So if you're a guitar player, you know, hopefully this is a, this is a cool thing for you, you know, and I know like tonight's show is a little extensive. It went on for a long time, but it's Frank Marino, right? So make sure you're going. It's Guitar Talk. Uh, it's Patreon forward slash Guitar Talk. And you can help us out any way possible. Make sure you're following us on all the corners of social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, on Guitar Talk and Jimmy Warren and Jimmy Warren Radio. And then our brand new website, guitartalkofficial.com. Make sure you're going there. A lot of really cool stuff happening now. So, you know, we've got uh, a couple of special episodes that are going to air on Sunday. In just a few days, we're going to do uh, double episodes of two really great bands, man. I got to sit down with the guitars from these two bands and just had a blast. I, I love these bands, too, man. One of them, the first band that's going to be 3 o'clock on Sunday, uh, January 13th, is a Blacktop Mojo. I got Ryan and uh, Chuck. The two guitar players for the band, they joined me. We had a, a great conversation about the band and their guitars and all that cool stuff. And then following them at 4 o'clock uh, Central Time on Sunday, it's going to be the band Georgia Thunderbolts. And that would be uh, guitarist uh, Riley and Logan. Now, these two guys, they're young cats too, man, but they're great players, really great players. You know, they got... You know, good hearts, and uh, they're going to go places and that, you know. I, I didn't know, something I found out was that uh, that in that band, somebody, one of the band members' uh, father is the guy who runs the Kentucky Headhunters. And so this, that's why these guys have been touring with the Headhunters and Blackstone Cherry and, you know, all, a lot of great bands like Blackberry Smoke and stuff like that. So uh, they're going to be on the show on Sunday. That's the uh, first show with Blacktop Mojo's 3 o'clock, and Georgia Thunderbolts is at 4 o'clock. So, uh, oh, my God. Yeah. And I'm not even going to tell you who's on after that because you're just going to have to wait till Sunday for me to tell you. There's a lot of really cool stuff happening. So go to guitartalkofficial.com. I want to thank you so much for sticking with us for so long tonight. And, uh, you know, download this episode, man. Save it. You know, there's some nuggets in there. Okay. We'll see you guys all on Sunday. Stay safe. Stay cool. Make sure you're playing guitar. You know, it hit me up, man. Leave comments you know, on my website or on YouTube or on Facebook. Let me know what you think about the shows. Let me know, you know, if you got any ideas, anybody you'd like me to see me have, all that other kind of stuff. Okay? All right. Until then, take care. Keep it warm.